Joe Biden deepened the war in Ukraine during a trip to Poland over the weekend when he declared that Russian President Putin, quote, cannot remain in power, unquote. As the U.S. and other NATO powers raise the stakes, is there any hope for a breakthrough in negotiations? We'll also discuss the administration's massive new military spending proposal, protests against British colonialism in the Caribbean, the death of Madeleine Albright, the debate over Russian oil purchases, and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's March 29th, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthrough news. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, apparently Putin can't remain in power. Yeah. So we learn from uh, the president of the United States, Joe Biden. I, before we get started, Nicole, I, I just want to thank all of the patrons who subscribe to this show, who support the show. We met all together last night, as we do once a month in our monthly seminar for patrons, where people get a chance to talk about what we're doing, ask me questions on any range of topics. And again, just a real shout out to all of the people who are not only listening to the show and talking about the show, but making the show possible by being subscribers, by being patrons. And if you listen to the show, rely on the show, do your part and help the show continue by becoming a subscriber. I'm glad you said that, Brian. We put a lot of effort, a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of research into the show you know, we we work together to make sure that it's a good program and that, you know, we're only able to do that because people support us. That's the only way that this actually happens. Yeah. And as a consequence of this teamwork and support, our audience is growing very, very rapidly. So we're very happy that we're able to keep bringing high quality content three days a week. Let's get started. I want to start with the audio clip. This is Joe Biden speaking in Poland Afterwards, and listen to the clip, everybody listen to the clip, because after he made his speech, Anthony Blinken and all the U.S. officials said this was just a matter of another Joe Biden gaffe. He went off script. He didn't go off script. I mean, if you watch the speech, not just listen to it, he doesn't go off script. This is part of what he intended to say. But let's listen. And for listeners, this is a clip from Al Jazeera. So you'll hear the reporter's voice first. Speaking from the grounds of the royal castle in Warsaw, Poland, U.S. President Joe Biden forcefully declared Russian President Vladimir Putin must go. For God's sake, this man cannot remain power. 
It sounded like a major shift in U.S. policy. Previously, U.S. officials, including the Secretary of State Antony Blinken, have denied the United States is seeking regime change in Russia. Walter, we've been talking a lot about Ukraine, about Blinken's role. Of course, Biden, you know, he's the president of the United States. It was, you know, his trip to Poland, it was perhaps he was trying to deflect from his, you know, awful poll ratings in the United States. His approval rating now is like 30 percent. It's lower than even Trump's. I mean, that was a low bar and he managed to beat Trump in disapproval ratings. Maybe it's deflection, but it's more than that. I mean, the fact that the president of the United States can say the president of Russia, who, by the way, is not only the head, the sovereign of a government that's recognized by the United Nations, is represented in the U.N. Security Council, has a veto as one of the five permanent members of the Security Council. He's also an elected political leader. But Biden has said he can't remain in power. For God's sake, he cannot remain in power. I mean, what other head of state, meaning not just Biden, but a U U.S. heads of state, arrogate to themselves the right to announce to the world who will remain in power and who must leave power? Anyway, there's a long storied history here. Yeah, Brian, I mean, we, we've been talking about on this show how the U.S. and the NATO powers view Ukraine and the people of Ukraine as, as nothing more than pawns. And I think that Biden's statement shows that. I mean, this sort of like tough talk, bluster, Putin must go kind of declaration. I mean, it, it shows that they're actually happy that there's a war going on. I mean, if the United States declares that this is a conflict that's about regime change, which is what Biden did, right? Like this, this is a war where either the Zelensky government or the Putin government will fall, then that means that there can be no negotiated solution. I mean, it's a way of sabotaging any type of negotiated settlement to the problems between Ukraine and Russia, which is exactly what they did in the run-up to the war to make sure that the invasion happened in the first place. They view this as their big opportunity to take out one of the two top countries on their hit list, Russia and China. They think that, okay, well, maybe, maybe Russia miscalculated. Maybe this is a major blunder by Russia. And so if we can just keep them involved in this war for long enough, if we can drag this war out for long enough, regardless of the consequences, the human suffering that goes along with that, then maybe we can finally achieve one of our big strategic objectives. I think that's the kind of truly brutal imperial thinking that Biden's comments betray. U.S. said, Mozak um, Day must go in Iran in 1953. Our Benz must go. That was 1954. Patrice Lumumba must go. And indeed, he was assassinated. A head of state of the Dominican Republic in 1965, the Marines invaded to topple the Dominican government. You had, of course, the overthrow of the, the New Jewel movement in Grenada in 1983. The U.S. said Noriega must go. He was the leader of Panama and the U.S. invaded in December 1989, and they kidnapped Noriega and brought him to a U.S. federal prison where he spent the next 30 years until he died in a U.S. federal prison, just like the old Roman Empire, where they would capture the, the leaders of the colonies and bring them back to Rome. Then, you know, Saddam Hussein must go, right? Saddam Hussein must go, and then the U.S. made sure he was captured and he was executed. He was the head of state. 
And then Libya, 2011, NATO bombs Libya. And they said, you know, Gaddafi must go. And Gaddafi is lynched in the streets, 70-year-old head of state, you know, brutally lynched in the streets. And Hillary Clinton laughingly said, we came, we saw, he died. Before that, I, I missed one, in fact. There was the Milosevic must go. That was the NATO war on Yugoslavia that started around this time in 1999. The U.S. and NATO dropped 28,000 bombs and missiles on Yugoslavia and threatened a land war, a ground war. And that's what made Milosevic capitulate on June 3rd, 1999. Then a little bit later, Milosevic was taken to The Hague and put on trial for the International Criminal, well, not the International Criminal Court. It was a special UN tribunal paid for by the United States and only Americans' victims and targets could be tried there. But let's keep going with this, this list, you know, of who must go. Then Assad must go. After Gaddafi was murdered, the U.S., Obama, Hillary Clinton said Assad must go. Then we have Maduro. Maduro. Maduro, right? Juan Guaido is the new president. By the way, people of Venezuela, Donald Trump announces, you have a new president. His name is Juan Guaido. Most of you might not know of him. This was in 2018. But in fact, he's your president. So Maduro must go. I mean, Esther, one regime change operation after another. But this is Russia. This is another member of the Security Council. And I think Walter's not wrong when he says that the reason the U.S. actually said it, I don't think it's a gaffe. I don't think it's Biden going off script. They're basically signaling Russia there's not going to be good faith negotiations. And it came right when Zelensky said he was willing to enter into real negotiations with Russia and have Ukraine's neutrality be a centerpiece of the new negotiations. But if Biden comes and says, for God's sake, Putin cannot remain in power, then Putin will hear that and think, well, their real goal here is regime change. And I think that these comments come on the heels of some very telling comments made last week by Ned Price when he was caught by reporters basically saying that the conflict is bigger than the Ukraine and Russia <laughs> and that there were all these other bigger issues involved like freedom, like like democracy. So it was hinting to reporters that Zelensky really did not have control and agency in these negotiations. And I think that's why Russia is not expecting much to come from them, because what Biden's comments indicate is that the U.S. is really the hand behind the negotiations and the hand behind the decisions that are being made in this war that is very clearly a proxy war right now. I heard the head of the Quincy Institute, Andrew Basefish, speaking on Monday, and you can see that there are some cracks among the ruling elite right now about Biden's comments and where some people are saying or agreeing with this position put forward by his administration that, oh, this is just a mistake. And other people saying that, no, you know, Biden is a seasoned diplomat. He's a seasoned politician. He knows what he's saying and that they don't have sympathy for this type of remark that is clearly ratcheting up an already dangerous situation. Brian, let's go to a second clip from that same Al Jazeera broadcast about Biden's speech this Saturday in Poland. From this location, on NATO's eastern flank, Biden also addressed the Russian leader directly, calling his invasion a strategic failure and warning him 
not to expand the conflict. Don't even think about moving on one single inch of NATO territory. We have a sacred obligation under Article 5 to defend each and every inch of NATO territory with the full force of our collective power. Okay, now let's everybody think about what Biden just said. He says in his tough guy talk, he said, don't even think about it, speaking to Putin. Don't even think about it. Article 5 means that in NATO, Article 5 can be invoked by any member that feels attacked by another entity. And all NATO members must then basically go to war, according to Article 5, in defense of the, the country that has invoked Article 5. So let's say Poland, for instance. And he says, don't you dare. If you do that, we'll meet you with our, I think he says, full collective force. Now, if Ukraine was already a member of NATO, which is what Russia has said should not happen, they will not allow it to happen, then Biden, the tough guy, would have invoked, or if Ukraine invoked Article 5, and Biden pledges that it would be the full collective force, meaning the nuclear arsenals of the United States, Britain, and France in particular, we would be, according to Biden's own admission there, we will be, would be, or will be in a full-scale nuclear war with Russia. Now, you know, I interviewed Daniel Ellsberg several times on our earlier radio show and on this show, and he was the author of The Doomsday Machine, and Ellsberg basically says, and he was part of the nuclear war planning with the RAND Corporation when he was assigned to the Pentagon from RAND, the U.S. internal estimates suggest that about 600 million people will die immediately from a nuclear war, but then a nuclear war will also create nuclear debris, radiation, dust, dirt, and the sun will be blocked, and there will be what they call nuclear winter, meaning people will starve to death because there won't be food. People will die because of the lack of water. It would be essentially the end of society as we know it. And you have this politician, Joe Biden, talking like, don't you dare. If you do that, we're going to have the full collective force of NATO if anything happens with Poland. Now, we've been talking on our show about one possible scenario, and I think this is an actively discussed scenario in the Pentagon and within NATO and certainly within the Polish military establishment that Poland, which we already know has land claims on parts of Western Ukraine, might move in to the area of Western Ukraine. And Walter, I want you to talk about this because you've talked about it in earlier shows. But if Poland moves in and says to Russia, we dare you, we're going to take this part of Ukraine as a preemptive move to stop you, Russia, from conquering the Western part of Ukraine. And if you attack, if you, Russia, attack us in the Western part of Ukraine, which we have now seized, then you're risking full-out war with NATO, meaning nuclear war. But this is not beyond possibility at all because, of course, what will Russia do if Poland does that? Anyway, Walter, your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I mean, these are some of the ways that that the unthinkable could actually happen, that that a nuclear war could actually potentially break out. And so, you know, even though these are being presented as like essentially things to bolster the popularity of these politicians because the corporate media has whipped up such 
an incredible war frenzy in society, the consequences would be horrifying. The Polish government, it's led by this far-right government that has a long-standing enmity towards Russia. And so they're also kind of looking for ways, opportunities to make the NATO powers, which, I mean, it's a member of NATO, it's NATO allies, adopt the most belligerent position possible. And certainly the transfer of weapons, including jets and tanks using Polish territory or Polish air bases is is one of those things. That's essentially a gray area, right? Like, does this constitute an act of war? That's something that Russia would have to consider. And then how does Russia respond? And then, and then the NATO powers would have to decide, does this constitute an attack, which would then trigger Article 5 of the NATO treaty and, and in all likelihood, nuclear war? On this question of the threat of nuclear war, which, I mean, is not hyperbolic in a moment like this, there's a lot of propaganda about missile defense, right? Like in the new budget proposal that the Biden administration is putting forward, they have many billions of dollars dedicated to, quote unquote, missile defense systems. But a missile defense system is not about preventing a nuclear strike from hitting the United States. That's not what it's primarily about. It's about making it possible to launch a nuclear war on another country. Because there are are actually people whose job it is to plan a nuclear war and the calculation that they make, I mean, the, the sick, unbelievable, you know, ghastly calculation they have to make is how many people are we willing to lose before the other side is completely annihilated? Well, maybe if we have the best satellite-based missile defense system, maybe only 30 million or 40 million or 50 million people in the United States will die, but we'll be able to wipe out everybody in Russia or we'll be able to wipe out everybody in China. And so let's build up our missile defenses so that it's better than the other guys and we can launch a successful first strike nuclear war. Nothing defensive about missile defense. That's going to be something that comes up, is coming up a lot and will come up in the future because of this issue that we're talking about. Also, Walter, I think that the fact that they keep bringing up their own scenarios about Russia, what Russia might do, it kind of blends into this whole issue that we've been talking about in terms of the propaganda around the war, because I wanted to point out an article, I thought a really important investigation that Dan Cohen published in Mint Press last week. And it really just talked about this massive PR campaign that's involving like 150 PR firms to basically create narratives for the Ukraine government and the kind of US NATO Ukraine kind of access there, right? And what this does is when you create these different talking points and scenarios, it ignores what Russia said it was trying to do, which is to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. It said nothing about going into Poland or or anything like this. But by bringing this up, you excite the imagination of all these people even more against Russia and its supposed evil intentions. And last week, the whole talking point was that Russia might use chemical weapons, right? So after Russia found these 31, what they said was 31 bioweapon labs in Ukraine, which Newland said were just bioresearch labs, then, you know, the Biden administration comes out and Biden himself came out saying, oh, well, they plan to use chemical weapons and this is a proof positive they are planning to use them. Now they're talking about, oh, Russia might go into Poland or Russia, you know, so they get to create the narrative that they want about what Russia is intending to do. I want to go back to this concept of a nuclear winter for a moment, because I think it sounds crazy to people. It sounds like 
Well, that would never happen. As Brian likes to point out, days before World War I broke out, it's not like people thought there was going to be a massive world war like the planet had never seen, but it still happened. But even more so with this, I think there's obviously, there are many paths, and Walter just talked about one, that could actually lead toward that happening. And it sounds crazy because it would kill million, hundreds of millions of people, but it's actually totally possible if we continue down this path. And I think one part of the reason that people aren't talking about this or thinking about this is because it's not even being covered really in the press. Like the press isn't talking about the fact that if this continues, this could lead to nuclear war. I just searched the phrase nuclear winter in the New York Times and their search function for the last year. And the one article that came up, other than like a couple of opinion pieces that weren't related, one article came up from January. It was about using the quote unquote nuclear option in the Senate about voting for a bill. And the phrase nuclear winter is Senator Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, the minority leader saying, quote, the Senate in nuclear winter would not be a hospitable place, unquote. No mention of the fact that nuclear winter, what it would look like, you know, no education for people, for Americans about what this could be. I know that's an interesting point, Nicole, that the sort of the cavalier way that the nuclear option has worked its way into popular vernacular. So the nuclear option is if the U S Senate got rid of the filibuster, uh, you know, <laughs> uh -huh. and like, there's all this kind of trivializing the nuclear option, meaning the big one, the big one. And, you but know, when the big one's actually on the table right now. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is people actually don't, think it's on the table. Right. You know, we we're going around distributing these trifold brochures that say why you should oppose a no-fly zone and you know, we're handing out tens of thousands of these all around the country because people think a no-fly zone means that Russian planes won't be able to drop bombs on Ukraine and Ukrainians will live. And so they think it's kind of a good, peaceful, humanitarian sounding. It's like sanctions. It sounds, well, it's not war, right? Yeah, it's not. It's, it's not, not actively dropping bombs. It's like stopping the bombs. But actually, as we've said over and over again, a no-fly zone actually means the U.S. would commit itself to shooting down Russian military aircraft in Ukraine and, and Russia will retaliate. Putin made it clear, if you intervene, if you engage, then you're engaged. And Putin also put Russia's nuclear forces on high alert, highest alert. Lindsey Graham, these others in the U.S. Congress, they're really egging on the no-fly zone. You know, I was on the Katie Helper show two nights ago, and she played a, a mashup that The Intercept did of all of these reporters peppering the White House press spokesperson, and the State Department press spokespersons with, what are you going to do? Aren't you going to do what Zelensky asks? He's asking for a no-fly zone. He's asking for more advanced weapons. They want to send the MiGs from Poland. MiGs are Russian or Soviet-produced fighter aircraft that are still in Poland. They want to send them to Ukraine so they can do aerial combat with Russia. And so the reporters are actually to the right of the Biden administration. If anything... We have Congress cheering on and demanding more and more war and escalation of the war. You have the media, including the so-called liberal media, again, a language we're going to try to stop using soon. You have the politicians from both parties demagogically condemning Biden for being weak because he's not moving towards a no-fly zone. The actual voice of restraint here is the Pentagon. It's weird, <laughs> but Lloyd Austin 
in the Pentagon central leaders are the ones saying, wait, no, we're not going to do a no-fly zone because a no-fly zone will mean war with Russia. Now, it's interesting that the Pentagon was also a little bit reluctant in the first days before the, the NATO war started against Libya. It was the Washington Post. It was Hillary Clinton. It was the media that were demanding that Obama do what Obama was up until that point sort of reluctant to do, which was to authorize the bombing war against Libya. And then Obama, true to his form, capitulated to that chorus of voices. But the Pentagon then, too, was reluctant. They, Robert Gates, who was then Secretary of Defense and had been George W. Bush's Secretary of Defense in his second term, he also said openly on the media, he said, well, you know, Libya, we don't have any strategic interests in Libya, meaning there's no reason for the U.S. to go to war. But the chorus won out. The chorus demanding more war won out. And what happened to Libya? I mean, we've talked about this so many times on the show. I mean, it was the country that had the highest standard of living in Africa. It has the largest oil reserves in Africa. You know, very far-reaching social welfare programs for the people, for the working class in Libya. That was all true under Gaddafi. It doesn't mean you have to be a Gaddafiist or a Gaddafiite to recognize the objective truth that people were pretty doing pretty well ever since the Green Revolution that Libya led in 1969 that evicted the U.S. Wheeler Air Base from Libya and took control of Libya from Western powers. Ultimately, the war happened, and in Libya, 11 years later, there's still no central government. Slave markets of sub-Saharan Africans reappeared in Libya. Again, that's why when we're thinking about the actual debate, and the role of the media, the role of the politicians, and even some people who call themselves leftists, this chorus demanding more intervention is leading the country to the edge of the abyss. And that's why it's so important that people get the right information to recognize that a, a no-fly zone is a disaster. Now, you know, we have another audio clip, Nicole, from Biden. We have several more audio clips, but Biden was considered, and, and Esther made the point that, you know, Biden was, is considered like a seasoned foreign policy expert because he was, played a prominent role in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was its chair for a while. This is Biden speaking in 1997. The Soviet Union has collapsed. There's questions, should NATO expand or not expand? Let's listen to what Biden actually said in 1997, 25 years ago. He's speaking at the Atlantic Council and... At the beginning, you'll hear some names. There are a couple of Russian politicians at the time. Our conversation was Ganov, which was repeated with Levitt. They talked about they don't want this NATO expansion. They know it's not in their security interest and on and on. And said, well, and if you do that, we may have to look to China. And I couldn't help using the colloquial expression from my state by saying to Zaganov, lots of luck in your senior year. Um, you know, uh, good luck. And if, if that doesn't work, try Iran. Um, and uh, I'm serious. I said that to them, and these were, very, and 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 they know. I knew. They knew. Everybody knows that that is not an option. And everybody knows. Every one of those leaders acknowledges and needs, and they resent it. But they need. They need to look west. And the question is, where this is designed to completely shut them out. Okay. Now I want to play another audio clip from that same. I think it's the same speech at the Atlantic Council. 
Because he says, look, the leaders, they resent having to be sort of under the boot heel of the West, but they know they have to look West. He makes a joke when he says, some of them thought we might look to China and there's a big laughter. Again, this is 1997 before China's rise as the second biggest economy in the world. And then he jokingly and also in a very demeaning and racist way says, oh, well, maybe you should look to Iran too. Maybe that'll be your way out. No, they resent it, but they have to look, they have to look to the West. They have to you know, sort of tie themselves to the West. And then listen to what he also says in the same speech. I think the one place where the greatest consternation would be caused in the short term for admission, having nothing to do with the merit and preparedness of the country to come in, would be to admit the Baltic states now in terms of NATO-Russian, U.S.-Russian relations. And if there was ever anything that was going to tip the balance were it to be tipped in terms of a vigorous and hostile reaction, I don't mean military, in Russia, it would be that. Okay, so Walter, he says if if the U.S. incorporates the Baltics into NATO, that's going to trigger a hostile reaction. He said maybe not a military reaction, but this will be like a red line for Russia. Then immediately the U.S. incorporates... The Baltics, that's Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, the three former Soviet republics, and right up close to St. Petersburg or what had been Leningrad before, right on Russia's border, they're incorporated into NATO. Then in 2004, there's another NATO expansion. More countries are brought into NATO. And then in 2008, and as we've said, at the Bucharest summit of NATO, the U.S. says, well, we're going to incorporate Ukraine and Georgia into NATO. And these are the two former Soviet republics on the western side of Russia. And just to show how important they are to Russia, right? Lenin died in 1924. The next Soviet leader was Stalin. Stalin was from Georgia. And after Stalin dies, the next Soviet leader is Khrushchev. Khrushchev is from Ukraine. And after Khrushchev is ousted in 1964. The next Soviet leader is Brezhnev, also from Ukraine. I mean, the idea that Georgia and Ukraine will now become part of enemy territory, a staging ground for NATO's advanced missiles against Russia. When you see the interconnectedness of these former Soviet republics to Russia, I mean, it's hard for Americans to fully get what this actually means. But it's clear Biden knew 25 years ago that this was going to be the road to confrontation. And he knows because they're telling him. You can hear that in that first clip. They've literally just told him the same thing that Putin said, you know, a month ago. Yeah. And he's repeating it with assurance. And then U.S. policy does exactly the thing that he says will trigger a confrontation with Russia. So you can't say the United States walked into this sort of without knowing what it was doing. I just wanted to pick up on what Brian was saying earlier about the chorus, because remember, and I know I've said this before, but Graham was one of the people speaking in a very belligerent way 
when there was all this, you know, escalation of tensions with North Korea saying that if we struck them with nuclear weapons, well, that would happen over there, (laughs) you know, meaning over there in Asia (laughs) and not here. And so there is a subset of people, true people who are just psychopaths who believe that they don't believe in a nuclear war, obviously, because they believe that they can strike areas outside the United States or over in Eurasia, maybe because we're the only ones who actually exploded nuclear weapons in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They believe that this won't have an impact here, that it won't, you know, mean the end of the human species, basically. And also, he is one of the people, by the way, very vocal, one of these loud voices, one of these loud, the loud, small chorus of people attacking Katanji Brown Jackson last week in her hearings to become the first black woman to sit on the Supreme Court. So these belligerent people, these people who are speaking in a way that is not in the interest of like human, the human species, human survival, peace, they can have an outsized influence. And so for people who are on the left or, as you said, liberals, to not understand that you cannot have a ratcheting up of violence as a means to have a peaceful solution, they need to to rethink that strategy and they really need to be a a real voice for peace about negotiations and not this ratcheting up of violence. I heard Ro Khanna, who was being talked about as a possible, you know, Democratic presidential candidate, saying that arming and sending all these additional arms to Ukraine is the only way to peace. And so I don't really understand a lot of the thinking among definitely the neocons, but also people who consider themselves liberals at this point. Yeah, it's it's really something how the right wing, the war hawks, the, the super hardline militarists have been able to just completely capture control of the narrative. And yeah, even drag along people like like Ro Khanna, who's, you know, considered to be like a critic of US foreign policy. But yeah, I mean he's he said all that stuff. I agree with Esther. I think there's a there's a significant subset of the U.S. political establishment that actually believes or depraved enough to actually believe that a nuclear war can be won and therefore it should be considered, you know, a viable policy tool, one of the, you know, options in the menu of options that Biden has available to him. And then I think I think there is another subset of right-wing politicians who are so vain and just purely focused on their short-term like personal career advancement and electoral success that they've basically identified Biden is weak on foreign policy or Biden has a soft foreign policy as an effective campaign narrative. And so they've said, okay, well, Biden screwed up in Afghanistan. He was weak in Afghanistan and then the Taliban took over. And then he was weak on Russia and then Putin invaded. Like they just think in terms of their own narrow electoral benefit so myopically that they're willing to take the world to the brink of nuclear Armageddon to do it. You know, I want to go back to a clip that Katie Helper played. It's from The Intercept, but it's all these reporters acting like super hawks and peppering the spokespersons for the Biden administration, demanding, why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you having a no-fly zone? Why aren't you sending more advanced weapons to Ukraine? And then at the end, Ryan Grimm, who is the Intercept journalist at the White House, asks Jen Psaki, will the United States empower Zelensky to come up with a negotiated end to the conflict, perhaps by allowing Zelensky to say that in return for the cessation of military conflict or the withdrawal of Russian forces, the sanctions that the U.S. imposed on Russia would be lifted. And then 
she says in response to Ryan Grimm, she says, well, of course, Zelensky is a sovereign head of state. He can negotiate with Russia and he is completely empowered and we're trying to do everything to assist him. So then Ryan Grimm says, so that's a yes. And then she said, she didn't say yes, because that would have meant lifting sanctions in exchange for peace. She said, instead, we're sending more weapons to Ukraine. We're making them stronger. We're strengthening their negotiating position by increasing the amount of weapons that they have. Now, Zelensky can't actually solve the problem Russia feels. Zelensky and Ukraine don't offer the, the magic solution because the problem is the United States wants to put advanced missiles in Ukraine and in other Eastern European countries that were the former allies of Russia or formerly part of the Soviet Union. The U.S. wants to do that. The U.S. military budget, and we're going to talk about that next, is just being increased. It's going to go like another 4 or 5% increase on top of these big increases. It'll be about $800 billion per year. And again, that doesn't count the other U.S. government agencies where there's also military spending, which brings the number to about a trillion. But, you know, that's more than double all of the other NATO countries combined. The other 29 NATO countries combined don't spend half that much each year. So what the U.S. is actually doing is contributing to the acceleration of tensions. And I have to just bring us back to what is the big picture for U.S. foreign policy? Obama, who I said before was a somewhat of a voice of restraint when it came to Libya or even Ukraine, he, would, he wasn't for sending these advanced weapons to Ukraine. Under the Obama administration, the U.S. spent $1 trillion or allocated or authorized the spending of $1 trillion more to create a new fourth generation of nuclear weapons, meaning lower yield nuclear weapons that would be more tactically available for battlefield situations, not like Hiroshima style or size bombs, but ones that are really so they can be used again, finally. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's a complete violation, obviously, of the 1969 Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, the NPT, which tells non-nuclear powers don't develop nuclear weapons, and in exchange, the already existing nuclear powers will step-by-step step gradually get rid of their nuclear arsenals, so we're going to march towards, together, a non-nuclear world. But if you're modernizing the nuclear weapons, creating a fourth generation, spending another trillion dollars on them, obviously, you have no intention of denuclearizing the country. You're going in just the opposite direction. And right now, I think there are sectors in the government that are anxious to test out battlefield type, the smaller type nuclear weapons to see if they can be used. You know, since Nagasaki and Hiroshima, there haven't been any nuclear bombs used. And Trump said, if we have all these nuclear weapons, why don't we use them? Like, what are they for? His thinking, while it seemed sort of maverick, to put it mildly, <laughs> or extreme, there is a sector of within the establishment that wants to try it out. Like, let's use tactical nuclear weapons that are smaller in yield, see if that prevents the enemy from going forward because the danger of a bigger nuclear war is so great. And by doing so, we gain 
a supremacy, an advantage over everybody else. Like that was the thinking in 1945. If the United States used nuclear weapons and the other sides didn't have them, then the rest of the world would cower before the United States. So this idea of nuclear supremacy is, in fact, still very much on the table. So in addition to that, though, like, let's also talk about the budget that just got put forward, that Biden just put forward. Like you said, includes, you know, it's over $800 billion for national security spending, quote unquote, for making war. Essentially. And this is just now. It's coming up right just in the last now. Just now coming days. out. Yep. It includes an increase of $31 billion reportedly. So just keep that number in mind, $31 billion. Also just coming out in the last few days, we're now coming to find out that the reimbursement fund for testing and treating the coronavirus in the uninsured, people without insurance, they are closing up shop. They have run out of money and they are closing up shop. And in 2021, the program spent $130 million, $130 million. So this program could be paid for several times over just with the increase. A billion, and Walter is our math whiz here, but a billion is a thousand millions. There you go. So what you're saying, Nicole, is they're shutting down COVID testing sites for the uninsured. Well, there's a new subvariant coming here. Yep. Sub mm -hmm. Subvariant. Mm -hmm. And that's because the $130 million, which is just over 10% of a billion, yep. isn't there anymore. And the military is being increased by 31 billion. That's correct. So some very small, maybe Walter will come out with this math, very small, very tiny proportion. You could just so easily fund this program so easily. And I think the Biden administration is saying, well, we're pushing for that in Congress, but the Republicans won't budge. But of course, everybody's going along. Both parties are happy to spend 31 more billion dollars and 813 billion in total just in war making. And there's more in other agencies, but that's just in the Pentagon. And, and they're making the argument that it's because of the Ukraine crisis that they have to spend this 31 billion dollars more. They're making that argument. I want to add that they're also making the argument that they need nearly $2 billion for a missile defense interceptor to protect the United States against missile threats from North Korea and Iran. Yeah, I mean, what what a completely delusional thing that these besieged, isolated countries would just lash out and launch a nuclear missile at the United States. I mean, that's obviously so far from the truth. Just to add one thing to that discussion of, of military spending, let's compare the amount of money, that amount of money that we're talking about, to the Russian military budget. Russia's military budget is about $61 billion, meaning that just the amount that is being increased, right? Just the increase of $31 billion. That's about half of Russia's total military spending. Wow. And, and overall, it's about 14 times, right? The U.S. Pentagon's budget is about 14 times the size of Russia's military budget. In fact, the U.S., the total amount of money spent on police in the United States, the total U.S. police budget, by some estimates, is about twice the size of Russia's military budget. Wow. $120 billion. Okay, quick question. How big is the uh, North Korean military budget? Smaller than the New York Police Department's. Oh, Walter, you are right. It's <laughs> under $4 billion. Wow. So, yeah. So, North Korea, a country of 28 million people, a military budget of $4 billion, a country that is enduring immense economic suffering because of sanctions. They're about to launch a nuclear strike on the United States. That's why... 
At the moment, the U.S. is closing down COVID testing sites for the uninsured. That's right. The U.S. is also allocating $2 billion to create a missile defense shield to prevent North Korea and Iran from striking the U.S. mainland. The U.S. is spending, or based on this budget, planning on spending more, $5 billion, almost $5 billion, for a space-based missile warning system to detect global threats. That's more than North Korea's military budget in total, that they want to put a missile warning system in space. But we can't pay for COVID tests. The Ukraine thing is perfect for U.S. war spending. I mean, first of all, how did U.S. war spending do anything to prevent this war? I mean, what is it doing to help Ukraine right now anyway? Again, the U.S. could have easily come to the negotiating table and said to Russia, yeah, we agree, Ukraine will be neutral. We won't place advanced missiles on your border. They didn't do that. So what's the defense spending all about? Why the next $31 billion? Well, here's another story. Again, using Russia as a punching bag and Ukraine as a pretext is so convenient for already existing plans made by the Pentagon. Again, remember in 2018, the new doctrine that was approved, the war on terror was replaced as the Pentagon's priority. And the new priority was going to be major power conflict. That means war with Russia and China. Here's from the New York Times of March 27th. With eyes on Russia, the U.S. military prepares for an Arctic future. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about melting ice in a, in a couple minutes, Nicole. But listen to this, the way the New York Times introduces this article. As climate change opens up the Arctic for transit and exploration, you could also say for climate catastrophe. As climate change opens up for the Arctic for transit and exploration, Russia has increasingly militarized the region. So the Russians are on the march in the Arctic. The U.S. is preparing a more aggressive presence of its own. Again, the Americans are always reacting to Russian aggression. I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? Russia, with a military budget of $60 billion, represents this global menace as the pretext, the convenient pretext for the United States to now expand the U.S. military presence into the Arctic. So as ice melts, as ships are able to traverse the area, all the more reason those should be warships. Yeah. And Brian, like you mentioned, just a, I mean, an incredibly important piece of news that's just coming out, an ice shelf that is actually bigger than New York City just broke off of Eastern Antarctica it was 460 miles. It was called the Conger Ice Shelf, shattered off the continent on March 15th. Eastern Antarctica was supposed to be and has generally been considered like the pretty stable, like not as vulnerable to climate change area compared to Western Antarctica. But just last month, the temperatures in that area in the East Antarctic ice sheet rose 50 to 90 degrees above normal over some of those parts. And it also rained, which is very rare. And then this massive conger ice sheet broke off. I mean, this is, this is the crisis that we need to be focusing on. Like the climate crisis is not going away, you know, and it's something that the U S government of course is also not really funding like research into or actually dealing with, or I don't know, public transit to reduce our emissions. I mean, this is also a crisis we need to be talking about and is just not being talked about. And also the way the Russia-Ukraine conflict is being covered, 
so many of the environmental organizations in the United States and Europe especially are looking at the crisis as a way to double down in opposition to Russia, saying that, well, you know, you're supporting Putin's oil, you know, by continuing to import Russian oil, you're you're funding Putin's war. And actually, on Saturday, Zelensky addressed the Doha Forum in Qatar, asking oil and gas producing countries to up their output to reduce reliance on Russian imports. And there was a huge global climate strike on Friday where you had so many of the activists making these same types of arguments kind of connecting the need to oppose Russia and to support this war and to support Zelensky to their long-term demands to decrease the dependence on oil and gas without understanding that only through negotiations to stop the war will you actually achieve your goals. There was one climate activist quoted on Friday saying, you know, we see now that we are in a war that is being financed by fossil fuels and we need to be speaking about fossil fuel. And today, tomorrow, the day after tomorrow, Germany is giving Putin millions of euros for his coal, oil and gas. There's no such thing as an isolated crisis. So anyway, this is how the climate movement is being brought into this conflict on the side of escalating war as opposed to calling for peace. Yeah, that's really important. That's such a go-along argument by that sector of the climate movement, a go-along meaning going along with the dominant war hysteria of the United States. And it's completely superficial and short-sighted. The oil producers and the biggest banks who finance oil production in the United States are using the boycott of Russian energy sources as a reason to expand oil production in the United States, in federal lands, in the Gulf of Mexico. It's a way of beating back the climate movement and saying, no, no, we because we're boycotting Russia, we have to allow U.S. oil producers to produce even more. When in fact, The United States is self-sufficient when it comes to oil and to natural gas. But anyway, this will be used as one more pretext. I want to turn, before we move on to another story, I want to go back to one other element of the Ukraine story so that our position is properly understood. And that that is about the role of the Azov Brigade, the right sector, the far right, the fascists, who were the muscle in the 2014 coup. When Putin announced that the Russians were engaging in what he called a special military operation or the invasion of Ukraine, in that speech on February 24th, he said it was for two purposes. One was to demilitarize Ukraine and secondly, to denazify Ukraine. And we made the argument that the likely outcome of this would be to actually allow the United States to sort of cement its militarization over Europe and bring Germany and France, which were reluctant allies, into the U.S. fold, which in fact is exactly what's happened. And we also made the argument that while it's true that the right sector and the Azov Battalion and the other fascists are a a significant force in Ukraine, that They're not a dominant force in Ukrainian politics. In fact, in the last parliamentary election, we made the point that they only got 2.1% of the vote. 
Now, that doesn't mean that the Nazi forces or fascist forces don't play a disproportionate role in Ukrainian society. They do. I'm looking at this story from March 2020, two years ago, and it's from Radio Free Europe, interestingly, but it was a story that was widely reported in other media. And the headline is Ukrainian nationalists, that's a euphemism for fascists, disrupt peace presentation on war in East. And then it's a picture of a principal advisor to Zelensky, also a stand-up comedian, apparently. He was an advisor to the Secretary of the National Security and Defense Council. He was having a press conference in Maripol in the East. And Maripol, which is now you know the focus of intense fighting, at first, after the February 2014 coup, Maripol was under the control of the separatist republics, Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republic. And then the Azov Battalion reconquered that area. So I believe that he had this press conference in 2020, in March, in Maripol. And he's making the argument that the road to peace in Ukraine is to go back to the Minsk Accords and to fully uphold the Minsk Accords, meaning a lot of autonomy for the Russian-speaking regions in the Donbass in the eastern part of Ukraine, demilitarization, sort of a deconfliction. That was the way there could be peace. Now, remember, he's Zelensky, a senior advisor and friend of Zelensky. So he's having this press conference. In the middle of the press conference, the Azov Battalion men march in and they start denouncing him as a traitor. And they say, you're calling this a civil war in the East and this is a war of liberation against Russia. And by calling it a civil war, you are a traitor. And then he retorts and he says, no. And then they start chanting the Azov Battalion and they march forward and they march to the podium and they throw this guy down on the ground. I mean, he's an older man. He's a senior advisor to the President Zelensky. Well, a week later after this press conference, he's fired. He's fired. He loses his job. This is important because Zelensky won the presidential election on the promise that there would be peace with Russia, that he would solve the problem of the civil war in the East, and that he would bring sort of a lasting peace for Ukraine. But obviously, even though they represent a smaller part of the population, the Azov Battalion using violence, and of course, Nazism always glorified violence. It was the cult of violence with fascism to spread terror and intimidation against the opponents of fascism. They're playing this outsized role. And the fact that Zelensky had him fired or approved of his firing or didn't challenge his firing showed too that while the fascists are not a dominant force within Ukrainian public opinion or weren't, they did have this outsized role in Ukrainian politics. Unfortunately, I think if anything, the Russian invasion has, instead of denazifying the country, is in some ways strengthening the hand of the Azov Battalion, because even here, and I'm sure this is true in other places, where Ukrainian Americans are marching against Russia right now, the Azov flags and banners are flying. They're not resisted. They're not being kicked out of the crowd. If anything, they now appear as the nationalists representing the nation in its struggle with Russia. 
And the the core element of fascist ideology in Ukraine, which of course is anti-Semitic, it's reactionary on many fronts, first and foremost now it's against Russia and it's to defend the nation against Russia. So our position is that if anything, the invasion is not weakening, but probably strengthening the fascist forces and their position in Ukrainian society, which doesn't mean it wasn't already a significant problem. And those fascist forces inside of Ukraine and the United States share a key strategic interest at this moment, and that's the continuation of the war. Both the United States and these ultra-nationalist fascist Nazi forces within Ukrainian politics and within the Ukrainian military establishment do not want a negotiated solution. The Ukrainian Nazis are are ideologically opposed to any type of concession whatsoever to conclude the war. And that's seriously limiting Zelensky's room to maneuver. Uh, For instance, you know, he said that Zelensky said that any compromise negotiated settlement with Russia would be put up to a referendum. It would be voted on by the Ukrainian population before it came into force, which is just another way of saying there will be no negotiated settlement. I mean, never, I don't believe, never in the history of warfare has the population of one of the parties to the war voted in a referendum in the middle of the conflict and said, okay, let's call it quits. You know, it's it's obviously Zelensky expressing the fact that his political situation is extremely difficult because if he makes any concessions in order to end the war, he could actually be overthrown himself by hardline elements connected with these types of forces. Because in fact, that's how the 2014 coup, the February 2014 coup that sort of set into motion the chain of events that led to this war took place in the first place, right? I mean, those were the the Nazi right sector paramilitary forces seizing the presidential palace. And if they've done it once within the last decade, maybe they could do it again. And he even said point blank on Sunday in terms of these new talks that are supposed to be happening in Turkey, that he was willing to make these concessions on neutrality and non-nuclear status. But he said, we will not sit down behind the table if we talk about some kind of demilitarization, some type of denazification. Wow. There's one other part of this whole Ukraine-Russia crisis that I want to bring in. And, you know, as I read the headline about the 100,000 Ukrainian refugees possibly being, you know, allowed access and entry into the United States, of course, we know that the refugees from the global south here, Latin America, Central America, people coming as far away as like transiting from Haiti up through South America, people crossing the Atlantic from Africa, Asia, other places coming to the Mexican border, they are not getting the same type of entry and same type of treatment. But I also wanted to point out to our listeners an investigation by The Independent in partnership with the Lighthouse Reports and other media partners, including Radio France, Dear Spiegel. They've revealed that Ukrainian residents of African origin who have crossed the border to escape the war have been placed in closed facilities, what we call detention camps, with some having been there for a number of weeks or months. And... This is kind of a hidden crisis. And we talked about it a few weeks ago at the start of this conflict when we know that 
Africans trying to leave Ukraine were not allowed to get on trains and buses to depart, that they were told to get to the back of trains and buses or pushed out of forms of transportation as they were trying to escape. But now we're finding that in Poland, I believe also in Estonia, they are being detained in these camps and not being allowed to go into the rest of Europe as the the white Ukrainians are. And we know we talked about how even in the UK, there's a, at least an offer of 350 pounds to compensate people who would like to house Ukrainian refugees through something called, is it pronounced the Schengen Agreement? that they uh, are allowed to kind of transit throughout Europe to find refuge as refugees. But this investigation is talking about dozens, if not hundreds of people being detained in these camps. I want to read a little bit about one refugee. It quotes Gabriel, and he is a young African student who had been studying in Ukraine. This is not his real name. They're using a different name to protect him. He had been studying in Ukraine in Kharkov before the war broke out. And I'll read from the article. The Nigerian national left the city and arrived at the border. And this is the border of Poland on February 27th, where he says his phone was confiscated by Polish border guards and he was given, quote unquote, no option but to sign a form he did not understand. And this is him speaking. It was written in Polish. I didn't know what I was signing. I said I wouldn't sign, but they insisted that I sign it and that if not, I would go to jail for five months. He said in a recorded conversation with a Nigerian activist, the student said he was then taken to court where there was no interpreter to translate what was being said so that he could understand and then taken to a detention center in a small village. This is him speaking, quote, it is a closed camp inside a forest. There's no freedom. Some people have been here more than nine months. Some have gone mad. I'm scared. And so this is an important report that people can read in the Independent and some of the other media organizations participating. And at the end of the story, they quote some UN officials and academics in Europe. Steve Pierce, a professor of EU law in the UK, says, even if member states choose not to apply temporary protection to legal residents of Ukraine, they should give them, quote, simplified entry, humanitarian support and safe passage to their country of origin. He continues, in my view, this is obviously a case where students could not have applied for a visa and might not meet the other usual criteria to cross the extended borders. Yet there are overwhelming reasons to let them cross the border anyway on humanitarian grounds. There are no good grounds for immigration detention in the circumstances. And then an official adds, they should be released immediately and treated on the same equal basis with all others who have been forced to leave Ukraine. So this is a story we should definitely continue to follow You know, in addition to, well, we know that CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, even the New York Times, they are continuing to cover this war in a very narrow vein and not continuing to cover the overt racism and, you know, legacies of European colonialism that are being manifested through this conflict. I always love to see the former colonial powers talking so righteously about their desire and willingness to go to war or to send weapons to other people in the name of human rights. Prince and Duchess, William and Kate, went to the Caribbean. They were there, Esther, to patch things up with the colonial subjects 
but it it didn't really work out that well for them. Well, it's actually amazing that they thought they could, I don't know, patch things up. You know, one of the stories that we looked at was in MSN News last week, and it was Prince William and Kate's tour was meant to secure the monarchy in the Caribbean. Instead, it's raising new questions about its future. And then the article says the British royal family is facing embarrassment on the international stage this week as protests disrupt Prince William and Kate Middleton's tour of former British colonies in the Caribbean. The Duke and Duchess of Cambridge began their week-long visit to Belize, Jamaica, and the Bahamas on March 19th. Officially, the trip was meant to commemorate Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee, celebrating 70 years on the throne. Many observers say the trip was meant to persuade the three countries to keep the queen as head of state and not to follow Barbados, which transitioned to a republic last November. But growing calls to cut formal ties with the queen and campaigns for slavery reparations have ignited a reckoning with the region's colonial past. So it just occurs to me, you know, reading the article, how out of touch not only the UK, this monarchy is with the post-colonial reality, but they're just totally tone deaf in terms of the reality on the ground in these countries. I think that the prime minister wholeness of Jamaica was quoted as speaking to Prince William's face saying that, you know, Jamaica is moving on. We're proud people. We want to, you know, experience prosperity and we want to basically move out of this position where the queen is the head of the state. And but even he is saying all these words under pressure from a movement in the Caribbean that we know was first made by Barbados a few months ago around the time of the Glasgow Climate Summit, where they declared not only independence, but declared themselves a republic out under the boot of Queen Elizabeth as head of state. You know, it's such an anachronism that in 2022, we're talking about Queen Elizabeth being the head of state of countries way across the Atlantic. And this is obviously a legacy of colonialism. So people may not know that right before this visit by Kate and William, that there were protests in Jamaica. There was a letter signed by 100 academics, politicians, and cultural figures in a very powerful open letter. And I'll just read a little piece of it. We note that your visit is part of the celebration to mark the 70th anniversary of the coronation of your grandmother and the 60th anniversary of Jamaica's independence. We see no reason to celebrate 70 years of the ascension of your grandmother to the British throne because her leadership and that of her predecessors have perpetuated the greatest human rights tragedy in the history of humankind. Her ascension to the throne in February 1952 took place 14 years after the 1938 labor uprisings against humane working living conditions and treatment of workers, painful legacies of plantation slavery, which persist today. During her 70 years on the throne, your grandmother has done nothing to redress and atone for the suffering of our ancestors that took place during her reign and or during the entire period of British trafficking of Africans, enslavement, indentureship, and colonialization. And so the following day, Prince William, responding to that letter, he stopped short of apologizing, instead expressing, quote unquote, profound sorrow for the appalling atrocity of slavery, he said during an address to Jamaica's prime minister on March 23rd. And then in response, they said, 
that the prince's words were unacceptable and added that there was no responsibility taken by him, no call out of centuries of British bloody conquest and plunder, end quote. So obviously what's going to happen now is that moves have already been taken in Jamaica to declare itself a republic, whether that's going to be through a referendum or other acts by the legislature, that's going to move forward. So this whole visit by Kate and William just highlighted what is an ongoing movement, post-colonial movement, to further separate themselves from the colonial past. And, you know, I think that we also have to connect this to the movement and the uprising against racism two years ago, because that was a global movement. And it just drew into sharp contrast, not only police brutality, police murder, military, this whole system of colonialism that we're talking about in terms of the Ukraine crisis, but also what's happening in people's countries and the fact that they they want to move on, as the prime minister said, and end this type of anachronistic arrangement. The Queen of England has $500 million, by some estimates, a $500 million net worth. I mean, that money came from this type of brutal colonial exploitation. I mean, it's not something that only belongs in the past. Right. There was also massive controversy in Belize, which was the first stop on their trip before they made it to Jamaica. Even the down to the details of where they landed, the Duke and Duchess or William and Kate coordinated with this big international charity called Flora and Fauna International, which bought this formerly communal property of the Mayan people who live in this village where they, Prince William and Kate were supposed to land. And so the charity was the one giving William and Kate the permission to land their helicopter down, but they never spoke to the villagers. They never spoke to any of the community leaders. They never spoke to any of the indigenous people there who this is like actively contested land. It's 12,000 acres that the Mayans, the, the villagers there are contesting because they're saying this quote unquote charity, you know, shouldn't be able to just buy this land and say, oh, it's private property. You can't use it. And then they land their helicopter on this on this land. So they protested and had signs and said, you can land anywhere else, but not on our land. And if wholeness, Prime Minister wholeness in Jamaica is kind of perceived as this kind of post-colonial leader that is like, you know, standing up to the monarchy, he was actually forced into this. And that's why I say we have to give you know, credit to the uprising against racism globally, because, you know, if you look back at news events in his own country, you know, there was a big movement just a few months ago around the fact that this transnational corporation wanted to mine on land that is considered part of the indigenous land there belonging to black people, wanted to mine on that land. And he was like standing up for the corporation. And so it's because of the movement of the people that he was able to stand, you know, toe to toe with Prince William and say, you know, we're moving on. He's forced to move on. You know, a lot of these uh, leaders in these countries, they want to save their own skins. They don't want to be part of the imperialist project, but they have to be forced to move on to represent the, the will and the desires of the people. Did you all see the vehicle, the colonial, the monarchical vehicle that they were riding around in? It was like amazing. This was like from when Queen Elizabeth II, also, by the way, she's the Queen of Canada, um, (laughs) was there in the early 1950s. She drove around in this vehicle. So they used the same vehicle. So they look like this old style 19th century looking colonial couple 
but in this like mid 20th century royal vehicle. And each time they stop, Esther, I don't know if you saw some of those pictures, they're like touching some of the Jamaicans' hands as the people are separated from them through chain link fences. So these hands are coming through these chain link fences and they're touching the the indigenous people. I mean, it has all of the sort of royal spectacle and grandeur of old style Queen Victoria, you know, monarchal decorum and spectacle. And, you know, I think it's so important what's going on in the Caribbean. And Esther, you're right. I mean, what happened in the United States or started in the United States as the nationwide uprising against racism really wasn't just a nationwide uprising against racism. It went all over the world. And when you think back to the tradition of how the struggles in the United States impact the Caribbean and how the struggles in the Caribbean impact the United States, it's a very, very interconnected history. Of course, the Haitian Revolution in the 1790s and then culminating in the victory in 1804 sent shockwaves through the United States because the idea of an enslaved population rising up and successfully overthrowing the colonial overlord, the French, the Napoleonic armies, in addition to their own slave owners, that sent shockwaves throughout the American South. So I'm really glad you brought this to our attention. I think we have to keep following the struggle going on in Jamaica, in Barbados, throughout the Caribbean. Of course, to recognize that Cuba and Venezuela are major radical forces in this region. And again, it's all part of the global struggle against racism and colonialism. Just one more thing. I think that listeners would enjoy knowing that the letters sent by those 100 academicians, politicians, cultural leaders included quotes from Emperor Haile Selassie that he made to the U.N. General Assembly on October 1963. And it was made popular in the song War by Bob Marley. And the quote that people will know is, the philosophy which hold one race superior and another inferior is finally and permanently discredited and abandoned. And where there is no, quote, first class and second class citizens of any nation and where the color of a man's skin is no more significant than the color of his eyes. And finally, where basic human rights are equally guaranteed to all without regard to race. People will know those lyrics from War by Bob Marley. As we've been having this conversation, I couldn't help myself. And I looked up the car, Brian, <laughs> that they're driving the in. The royal vehicle. Oh, my God. You have to look this up and see it. And they must have intentionally done this. Like, it's quite literally the same car, the same image. She's wearing a very similar dress. They're all wearing white for some reason. You know, it's the same thing. Like, why would you think that that would be a good idea? The relationships have obviously changed a lot. Like, why would that be the thing you want to do? Also, why are you standing up in a car? That's not safe. But That's, it's that but royal decorum that you're talking about, Brian. It's, the it's royal like, decorum, let yeah. me do my like royal curved hand wave to the people <laughs> who will bow before me sort of situation. Exactly. Really They are gross. still their subjects. Yeah. Right. This is their last day in Jamaica when they're doing this. So they've already, they know people are not feeling oh, good really? about this. So, oh, yeah. 
So they, oh, people yeah. everywhere they go, people are rising up and protesting. And they're like, let me put on my doily white dress and tilted hat and stand up in this vehicle from, you know, decades ago. The Jamaican prime minister says, nice meeting you, by the way, we're done with you. Uh-huh. And then you get in your vehicle. You get in your vehicle and you do the little parade thing. <laughs> by the way, we could just mention too, Walter Rodney's How Europe Underdeveloped Africa is basically the like seminal work of political economy that everything we've just been talking about is rooted in. So I highly recommend everybody checking out that book written by Guyanese revolutionary, a Caribbean revolutionary named Walter Rodney. If you're interested in this conversation, you will definitely be interested in that book. Yeah, and Walter Rodney was assassinated in his mid-30s. I want to go on before we go to the liberation news stories, the liberation news roundup. I want to talk about the death of Madeleine Albright, first woman secretary of state. She had also been U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. She served in both terms of the Clinton administration, first as the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., later as secretary of state. For many of us who were very active in the anti-war movement, in the anti-imperialist movement of the 1990s, we always remember Madeleine Albright as the one who was asked by Leslie Stahl on, I believe it was 60 Minutes, and Leslie Stahl had just learned about the death and dying, the destruction, the barbarism of UN, US sanctions. The UN was the one that imposed the sanctions on Iraq, but it was under the direction of the United States. But the UN, according to their own statistics, estimated that 8,000 Iraqis died every month because of sanctions, because they didn't have food or medicine or clean drinking water. Country was completely sanctioned. And that went on for 13 years, all the way up until the March 19, 2003 invasion of Iraq. And Leslie Saul learned about it. I think she had gone to Iraq. I had been there several times before Leslie Stahl, and we were bringing medicine to Iraq in defiance of the sanctions. We were openly defying the sanctions. And, you know, it was heartbreaking. You went into the hospitals and you went room to room to room, and there were mothers holding their infants, and the infants were literally dying as we spoke to the mothers. And they were dying from things like diarrhea, which could have been easily treated, except they didn't have any medicine. And they didn't have any medicine because of the sanctions and the fact that some parts of the U.S. anti-war movement chanted sanctions, not war, shows the miserably low level that existed at that time. But Madeleine Albright was asked by Leslie Stahl whether she thought it was worth it because she had heard that like a half a million babies had died. And of the 8,000 who died every month, according to the U.N., 5,000 of them were babies. The other 3,000 were basically their grandparents, older people who were also weak and vulnerable. Do we have a clip of that interview with Madeleine Albright? Yeah, we do. Here it is. We have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died when, when, in, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. Yeah. Question to all of humanity, killing 500,000 babies, is the price worth it? It's a tough question, she tough says. Tough question, Brian. It's tough. But, but yeah, let's kill those babies because the price is worth it. And what was the price? They had to contain Iraq, the big, powerful Iraq, a country of like 26, 27 million people, a country that was completely 
demilitarized by weapons inspectors who had been all over the country. UN weapons inspectors conducted 13,000 weapons inspections throughout Iraq. But yeah, she can cavalierly say the price was worth it. When the Women's Rights Museum in Seneca Falls, New York, was opened in the mid-1990s, or maybe it was the early 2000s, Madeleine Albright was the keynote speaker, and uh, myself and several other people from the women's anti-war sectors of the women's movement, we were there at the thing protesting Madeleine Albright and protesting specifically her role in the destruction of Iraq and the killing of 500,000 babies. I want to read, though, from the New York Times. The I wish we could take enough time to sort of fully annotate the New York Times lying piece of crap obituary for Madeleine Albright. But I'll just read a couple of sentences. And for, for those of us who were active in the 1990s when Madeleine Albright wielded so much influence, it really shows the lying character of the New York Times and of the mass media, even in the obituary. As Mr. Clinton's top diplomat during relatively peaceful years, Ms. Albright dealt with regional conflicts in Bosnia-Herzegovina, that would be Yugoslavia, Kosovo, also Yugoslavia, Haiti, Northern Ireland, and the Middle East. But no wide wars. She promoted the expansion of NATO into the former Soviet bloc nations of Eastern Europe and defended continued economic sanctions against Iraq. They don't mention at all the interview with Leslie Stahl, where she said, yeah, it's worth it to kill 500,000 babies. They just say she continued to defend economic sanctions against Iraq. A crisis on Miss Albright's watch developed in late 1997 and early 1998. After Iraq's president, Saddam Hussein, blocked the access of UN weapons inspectors to sites where Iraqi chemical and biological weapons of mass destruction were believed to have been hidden in violation of the Security Council resolutions passed at the end of the 1991 Persian Gulf War. After months of warning and an American military buildup in the region, I'm still quoting from the obituary, Ms. Albright and Mr. Clinton threatened to launch devastating and aerial attacks on Iraq unless the sites were reopened to inspection. Iraq has a simple choice, Ms. Albright said in a public warning to Saddam Hussein. Reverse course or face the consequences. Now, I was in Iraq in December 1998. The Clinton administration, with Madeleine Albright being the leading force, announced that they were withdrawing the weapons inspectors from Iraq. Iraq did not eliminate the weapons inspectors. They were withdrawn by the U.S. government. And I was actually, and I've mentioned this before on the show, I was actually present with Iraqi government officials December 11th, 1998. One of them came in and said, you have to leave now. And leaving wasn't that easy from Iraq because you couldn't fly out. It was a no-fly zone in Iraq. If you were in a plane in that part of Iraq, you would be shot down by the American military. So in order to get out of Iraq, you had to basically find someone to drive you through the desert to Amman, Jordan. That's an 18-hour drive through the desert. And they said, you have to leave because the U.S. is going to start bombing our country. And the reason they're going to bomb is they say that we have stopped weapons inspectors. But what actually happened is that the weapons inspector team came to a Ba'athist 
political office at 5.05, five minutes after the office closed, and said, we want access to look for weapons. And the janitor wouldn't let them in. He said, I have to check with my supervisor about whether I can let you in. And of course, what political party would hide weapons of mass destruction in its headquarters or a political office in the middle of an urban area like no one? And so they turned around and before the janitor could even come back, they left. Clinton got on TV, said Iraq has been obstinate, wouldn't allow weapons inspectors to do their job. And sure enough, before we got out of the country, the U.S. started what was known then as Operation Desert Fox, and the U.S. dropped a thousand bombs, a thousand bombs and missiles on Iraqi cities for the next four days. And then every day, every single day, from then until March 19, 2003, the U.S. bombed at least one site in Iraq that was nonstop bombing. And it was never explained. It was never challenged. This was Clinton and Madeleine Albright's policy. And the fact that, you know, the mass media, including the New York Times, are saluting this person, saying how wonderful she was. She was a pioneer. She sort of broke the glass ceiling and allowed women to take higher positions, all of which, of course, would be good without really understanding the criminal character of what she and the Clinton administration were involved in. Anyway. Right. Like I imagine the women whose babies are dying, who she's fine with them dying, like don't care that she's a woman. I'm pretty sure they're in opposition to anybody making those decisions. But in the first few paragraphs of the obituary above the first photo, she, you know, she was secretary of state and she was quote, the highest ranking woman in the history of American government at the time, unquote, something to be deeply proud of that. She was the first woman to say these babies must die. I want to remind people that in 2004, when she did an interview, she did say that her remarks with Leslie Stahl were were stupid, but she didn't say that the policy was wrong. She mm. never she didn't come back and say that it was wrong to have a policy where a half a million children would die. And I just wanted to point out that just like with Harry and Kate, not really apologizing, but saying that slavery was abhorrent, but not really taking responsibility as the monarchy for slavery and colonialism in Jamaica, you know, this is the same type of reaction, official reaction you get from imperialists. And I think that it's just like we can talk about Ukraine and nobody's talking about the 14,000 people in East Ukraine that were killed before this conflict started. Those lives are disappeared in the process of creating this narrative that Russia just started this war. And just out of insanity, they just started this war. And it just goes to this whole narrative that we've been talking about in terms of what is genocide. I think that a half a million children being killed is genocide. But, you know, the United States wants to talk about genocide, so-called genocide in China. They want to talk about so-called genocide in Ukraine happening right now. They want to use those terms when it's convenient, you know, not in terms of Libya or Palestine or, in this case, Iraq and the fact that America has blood on its hands. I'm so glad you made the point, Esther, that Madeleine Albright said it was stupid for her to say yeah, the price is worth it. She's like, I wish I would have lied. <laughs> I wish I wouldn't have said that, but she didn't take it back and she didn't deny the number. This is extremely important because I was so involved along with others on the 
you know, fighting against the economic sanctions on Iraq, you know, we paid careful attention. We kind of knew exactly what was going on. We filed Ramsey Clark, actually, a former U.S. attorney general, and we were working with Ramsey at the time. Every two months during that entire decade for the 1990s, every two months, this was before, you know, the Internet was widely available. A group of us would take letters that Ramsey Clark would write that would document to every member of the Security Council and other UN member states exactly what the humanitarian situation was in Iraq. And the two coordinators of the UN program in Iraq, the two coordinators both resigned eventually and came into our anti-sanctions movement because they agreed with us that sanctions are genocide. Gloria Lariva made a 30-minute long video about one of our trips to Iraq with medicine, this act of international civil disobedience. And the name of her video is Genocide by Sanctions. And, you know, it was kind of a slow-motion genocide. It happened, you know, without the drama of bombs bursting in the air or gas chambers. But it was a genocide nonetheless. When you, you know, the international definition of genocide, when you kill a people in whole or in part, because of who they are, you can see clearly that the definition conforms to what was happening in Iraq. Those babies were dying for no other reason than the fact that their mothers were Iraqis and they were Iraqis. That's why they were dying. And so that is genocide. Walter, let's move on to, of course, our last story, the big stories from Liberation News. Yeah, I want to encourage people to check out a few articles in particular, but of course you can go to liberationnews.org and sign up for a newsletter at the top and check back every day for frequent updates. One piece is titled, Right-Wing Senators Turn Supreme Court Hearings into Spectacle of Racism and Bigotry. This is about the confirmation hearings for Katanji Brown-Jackson and the ridiculous attacks that were hurled against her by the likes of Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, other far-right racist senators. Another piece titled Utility Shutoffs, Evictions, Foreclosures, Capitalists Prepare to Go on the Attack as Relief Programs. And we've been covering this story on the Socialist Program, too. This has important facts about this mounting attack on workers as these crucial social programs expire. And finally, I want to recommend an article titled Mississippi Call Center Workers Launch Strike. This is about a strike by workers at the Maximus Call Center in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. They've been receiving solidarity by other striking call center workers in Louisiana, an important example of labor solidarity in a part of the country where the laws and authorities are, are deeply, deeply hostile to the labor movement. So again, check these out and more at liberationnews.org. All right, we're going to leave it right there. We'll be back with Richard Wolf on the big economic stories on Wednesday. Our Thursday episode, The Real Story, which airs Wednesday night as a YouTube video on Breakthrough News, will feature how China is looking at the Ukraine war. Thank you again to all of our patrons. If you're not a patron, become one. As we always say, we can do this show with you, but not without you. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. 
We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 